Is this for credits? The NZATE podcast. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? Good. I'm with my family. I'm wrangling my father and my child, my mother, and not my husband. And we're walking to a, um, there's this cool, I guess it's like a, a like a bougie food court in um, Titarangi called Street Feast and there's all these really awesome vendors and um, it's it's a great place to wander up to through the bush and, you know, have a drink and get some time. And not have to cook. Sounds great. I've just spent the nicest time in the mountains. Whereabouts? What mountains? Um, the sort of craggy burn rages um, and across over into the west coast as well. Lots of, it was with the geography field trip. And you just put your hand up like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I'll volunteer as a teacher support grown-up responsible person yeah exactly that we went caving we went scree sliding we we basically every adventure you could imagine you could do we did so it's been really great ah that's so cool that must have been so affirming like career affirming and life affirming all in one you know those times when you look at each other and go this is our job We do what we do. I love my job. I love you, man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's so good. Just like that. So it's real good. You need those moments, yeah. Hey? Definitely need those moments sometimes. Hey, do you want to hear a um <laughs> terrible, hilarious story that my mum's just told me yeah. about my sister yes, please. on her last day of year thirteen? Okay, so um. My sister was a student for whom the school, the traditional school system was not made. So she's highly intelligent, very successful, so too intelligent for the system, you know. So she'd just constantly be calling bullshit like, why are we doing this? And she quickly earned her reputation as being a delinquent. Um, But And I think if if we'd gone to school now, it would have been such a different experience for her but she hated school for such a long time (laughs) anyway on her final day of year 13 and she'd spent a significant amount of time not doing year 13 or seventh form much to my mum's like oh my parents just peril they it was so hard for them (laughs) and she she was in my mum's shitty little Toyota Starlet and mum's driving her up to school being like Rachel, you've got to drop your biology book off to the school, please. They've, been, they've sent me, not emails, letters, <laughs> you know, and they've called me. So mum finally manages to get Rach into the car and off they drive to the school, deliver these texts. And yeah, get into the car. So Rachel's wearing a sarong. And in, I don't know why, but in my family, we have a couple of authentic cowboy hats. I have no idea where they came from. And I have no idea as to why on that day there would have been one of those Stetsons in mum's Toyota Starlet. But anyway, Rach donned the Stetson and the sarong and she arrived at the front gates of our school, which was quite like the front entrance of that school was quite like palatial. And there were big stairs walking up to the front entrance. And she walked up to the front entrance and just before she got to the front door of the foyer, she took her sarong off and was wearing a bikini and then yeah so she she walked into the front foyer in a bikini dumped the texts that she was owing turned back around and got back into mum's 
little starlet and mum was obviously just absolutely mortified and so confused but probably quite relieved that that was the final chapter of her one of her daughter's secondary school experience what a wonderful final chapter i know i just found this out like 10 minutes ago you never knew this i never knew i never yeah mum was just saying before you're like do you know what happened on rachel's last day i was like no tell me about it it sounds like a scene from a quentin tarantino film (laughs) really oh yeah and like she's incredible she's just she is just so bright lights a room up so vivacious just so so beyond but at the time would have was absolutely characterized as the most challenging young person but it was just because she 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 knew santa wasn't real when she was like you know 18 months (laughs) i need to make sure that I'm meeting the needs of those kids too. That's right. And and not to mention the fact that you'll have a newfound respect for your sister. Hell yes. <laughs> yeah, totally. I want to hear her side of that story. You should ask her to tell it and see how it reads from her point of view. Well, this week on our on our podcast, we've got Hera Lindsay Bird, who you know has a reputation for being a bit irreverent herself, doesn't she? Yeah, absolutely. It was so wonderful to to chat with her and also to have her over. Like what a treat. It's a real coincidence that her spouse, her partner, is very good friends and like childhood friends with my husband. So they catch up like fairly regularly. And I was like, well, let's, you know, we'd love to chat to Hera anyway, because gosh, she's so articulate. Just hearing her talk about her poetry and her craft was so inspiring to me. And listening back on that, it's just so moving hearing about how people use well, it it sounds really simple, but how people use language to express ideas or how people have ideas and then express that through language. Yeah, she was so laconic about it all, which I suppose might have been partially due to the fact that she was over at your place for a drink. But at the same time, I loved that. Like all our podcasts should sound like the person's just come over for a drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we can can choreograph that, I'm sure. Yeah. So, so in future, all our guests have to be in one of our houses with a drink in their hand. <laughs> easy, easy. <laughs> Perfectly done. Anyone's listening, want to be a guest? You just give us a Please. call. <laughs> all you need, we'll, we'll 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 supply the Chardonnay. You just rock up. We're at episode six. The podcast is essentially underway and I've been really enjoying some of the feedback we've been getting people are very kind of course but thought it would be a good moment for us to say if you are a listener to the podcast and have ideas or thoughts for us then we're all ears please do tell us absolutely yeah what sounds good what sounds bad and ugly fire it through anyone who has thoughts that might even be a bit contrary to what they're hearing on the podcast again definitely let us know we'll, we'll get you in and we'll, we'll we'll thrash it out with you yep love it you're actually currently walking in the forest with your family i am yeah you might have just heard a um a nissan leaf drive past so i live in in Titarangi, sort of in the bush about 10 minutes walk away from from where we're heading for dinner which i may have said earlier but um yeah, it's pretty special. It's pretty green. It's a hell of a commute to work, but it's it's a beautiful place to be. So I'm going to catch up to my family who's walking about 10 metres in front of me and um, think about what I'm going to have for dinner. I like that kind of pun, though, isn't it? You, I talk about you walking in the forest <laughs> and you make a reference to a Nissan leaf. Have a good evening and enjoy Hero Lindsay Bird, everyone. Yes. All right. Peace. Take care. Matiwa. Hi. 
Hello everyone, we're here with Hera Lindsay Bird. Um, she's sitting right next to me in the corner of my husband's office and we're having a wonderful beverage while our spouses are inside um, talking about some shit. So welcome along, it's so nice to have you here. And uh, let's get stuck in. Chris, you were halfway through a question when we decided that we should start recording. Do you want to start that question again? I was mentioning that in a lot of ways, if you're looking at New Zealand contemporary poetry at the moment, Hera, your influence on that poetry is quite strong. There's quite a lot of elements that I start to see weaving through other people's work. You could almost say that there are things you did when you wrote in the last few years that has given people permission to write in certain ways or cover certain territory. I think... There are just kind of movements that happen in literature that don't originate from any kind of particular source, but everyone kind of all has the same idea at once. So I, I don't know whether, like, I think that New Zealand poetry has changed a lot recently, but um, I would never say that would have anything to do with me. Like, I think some of it is the culture of the internet. I think some of it is like the proliferation of um, people just being able to access different voices like I think that a lot of my influence came from the states and I think there was sort of no way to get that sort of poetry over here when I was a teenager like uh, apart from a couple of tumblers or live journals we just didn't have access to it and now of course it's so easy to find that sort of stuff online that I think there's just been a real explosion in the kind of writing that people have been um exposed to and influenced by um whereas in the past you know, it used to you used to have to go to the Wellington Library and look through their poetry section, which was predominantly like the war poets and people like yeah. that. So when you say that sort of poetry that you people now have access to, what is that sort of poetry? There's, I mean, there's just so much stuff out there. I think that we grew up in New Zealand with a very British tradition of poetry. I mean, I think that probably as English teachers, you guys, I'm sure there's still stuff on the syllabus that is from like 100 years ago and it's kind of, um, you know, Coleridge and Keats and all of that sort of stuff, which was, you know, even even up until recently was the primary thing taught in high schools. And then even um, stuff like the New York Poets and Frank O'Hara, I didn't really read those until I was in my early 20s and they were the kind of thing that kicked poetry off for me. And I do love all of those old, like, British poets. And the older I get, the more I sort of go back to them. and The old dead white guys. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But um, I just I just didn't know there was anything else out there. And I think that now there's everything. Like, I, I see, like, a lot of Richard Seacon poetry kind of going around. You know, Danes Smith, um, people like Amanda Gorman, um, all of the spoken word influence is um, huge. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I'm like, I'm I'm probably out of touch now with what's cool and popular. So mm. I, th- I know I what think young it, people are reading. I think it's you. You're, you're one of the cool and popular things that people are reading. And this is going to sound really um, reducing, Perhaps, but it is so freeing to see, and this is a real quality that I love in in your poetry in particular, it's so freeing to see profanity in swearing. I was going to say shit and fuck, but I dream. <laughs> and can you notice, Chris, I've got glasses on tonight. So I see you. You look, you look so like a teacher. And I love how every time I enter the room, you stop swearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very sweary. Um, but it's... It, and like you were saying 
for Chris, like you're, you're giving people permission to see poetry and write poetry and explore poetry in a new way. But there's such a beautiful uh, quality in your writing, which is that contrast between perhaps what might, we might see in some of those old dead white guys, but also this raw and what I see as really feminine, powerful um, imagery and language as well. And it's just that contrast which I, I think is starting to emerge in New Zealand poetry, which is so exciting to see and so necessary, I think, to bring into the classroom because it's it's relevant. And it's also irreverent and it's also surprising and unexpected and none of those things are true of the poems we traditionally taught. I think it also requires a little bit of confidence from teachers to introduce that material. It's slightly countercultural to have swearing in a classroom or to have... Uh, sexual desire enumerated in elaborate ways. And, and that sort of thing comes through in your poetry. So it's obviously deeply personal as well. Do you feel exposed by it? Um, no, I mean, I was very lucky to have very super liberal parents who just didn't care what I wrote. And I think that's the main um, issue people have when they sort of come to writing confessional things. It's like a, a, a fear of what your family is going to say about it. And so that that kind of obstacle was completely non-existent for me so I'm I think I feel like I've been really lucky in that sense and I feel like apart from that nobody else would care really but yeah like that thing about sort of profanity or um you've got to ask why even read poetry now because like some of the the most exciting linguists are like it's probably all in lyrics and like music musicians um yeah I I just I, I feel like that's where so much kind of linguistic innovation has been enough poetry isn't going to keep up with that and use the the language that young people to speak to each other with um mm. it's not going to stay alive mm. and i don't think that those old forms are stale or unexciting or unsurprising but you can't pretend that you're living in the lake district in the 18th century any, anymore because it's otherwise you're just performing like a weird kind of historical burlesque or something like that. That sounds salacious. <laughs> yeah, of course, you know, Coleridge's poems were obviously quite surprising at the time, and so I don't want to dismiss them either. I'm interested, though, in the fact that, like Philly mentioned, your poetry comes across as very female-orientated. It's an expression of a, of a female's perspective and point of view. And again, I hesitate to say these things, but I feel like they actually have a lot of resonance. They, that's a new voice. And I find that really exciting working in a boys' school in particular. Like the person who really inspired me is a woman called Chelsea Minnis, who's um, from the US. And she she's so hard to describe. Like I've got a long poem in one of my books that's just after her and it's this kind of really like old Hollywood like decadent flamboyant camp and it just plays into all of the worst stereotypes about women in such a like fun way and I think that's that was one of the things that excited me about writing the book was to kind of I guess that, I guess that kind of like hyper femininity was a way to subvert the kind of the seriousness of the you know, sitting down and writing a, a book of poetry, particularly in a New Zealand context, I think. Like, I, I I think that there's been all sorts of stuff overseas, but, like, we have such a moderate, um, considered, quiet voice in New Zealand poetry, which I also really like. Like, Jenny Bornholt is one of my absolute favourite poets, but um, I wanted to do something that was in really bad taste, 
And I think that playing into that hyper-femininity was part of the enjoyment of that. While in New Zealand poetry, that more irreverent voice wasn't necessarily apparent, it's been apparent in New Zealand feminism for a long time. It's always been interesting to me, and I think, you know, with the 3.8 critical text assessment, feminism is a lens that's that's often taught in secondary classrooms. How do you find your male students respond to feminism as a topic and a critical lens and how do they respond to critical female voices in literature? Oh, it's such an interesting and rich thing to do with a group of boys. One of the things that still is kind of great about working with boys is that some of the rules for how to behave as a male kind of get left at the door. (laughs) And so they're actually a lot more free. And so those explorations have a lot to do with a genuine, quite heartfelt interest in being part of a better world. And also it's a really defined voice and there's a set of really interesting angles that a feminist reading will take on a text, which I think they find quite clear cut and quite secure to, to work with. Mm. And I think they feel quite, um, and I think they, because they're not female and they know that it's territory that they can't be authorities in necessarily, I think that means that they take a more sensitive and careful approach to it. So I think it works really well. I work as a um, kids bookseller, which is my like other main love. I'm just obsessed with kids books. For anyone who hasn't been there just as a as a plug um on the corner of Vulcan Lane and High Street in Auckland like if you're coming up to Auckland it's worth making the trip um not only to Unity Books but particularly to your store Mm. the children's book selection is just absolutely stunning and so beautifully curated yeah I feel like young boys and men are so curious and interested in women's experiences and this it's this really strange thing that happens if you work in children's book selling where um You'll, you'll be asked to recommend a book to a boy. And if the boy is there, you can you can show them anything and they will they will read it. It doesn't matter if it has a female protagonist. It doesn't matter if it's about feminism. Like, they are really open to anything. But as soon as you try and sell that same book to their grandparents, they'll say, oh, no, he won't be interested in that. It's got a girl character. And so I find the people who do the censoring are not the boys themselves. It's always an older generation which is such a strange thing because boys are just as curious about women's inner lives, obviously, as women are men's. Not only is it an interesting insight, but it provides them a vector to examine their own inner lives, a new way to come to the understanding of themselves. But it's interesting in an all-boys school, particularly like at the moment, such a strange microcosm of culture and just to see what young people are interested in. I feel like you help. I think your poetry helps. I know you you are distancing yourself from the classification as being young, but if we can kind of elide over that for a moment and just say that it helps me in the sense that there are voices and perspectives that are no longer part of my everyday reality, but that I want to have the boys engage with. And so your poetry provides me with a really secure way of alerting them to, to points of view that I can't offer from my own experience. And that's really valuable. And another thing that happens is that they, they can then bring the rhythms and patterns and references and norms of communication that uh, reflect their own internet communication, the way they speak to each other online. And there are there are real resonances between your poetry and the way they're talking to each other. So as you say, there are plenty of venues where there's really great language innovation happening. But poetry does have a special place there because it's not just an immediate 
expression of that it's it's a very considered intentional expression of that and i feel like your poems succeed in that actually i wanted to ask as well would you read one yes i can read one pyramid scheme the other day i was thinking about the term pyramid scheme and why they call it pyramid scheme and not triangle scheme and i asked you what you thought you thought it added a certain gravitas and linked the idea of economic prosperity with some of history's greatest architectural achievements unconsciously suggesting a silent wealth of gold and heat. A triangle is two-dimensional, and therefore a less striking mental image than the idea of a third dimension of financial fraud, which is how many dimensions of financial fraud the term pyramid scheme suggests. But I had to pause for a second at the financial fraud part, because it occurred to me, I didn't know what pyramid schemes really were. I knew they had something to do with people getting money from nothing, like the person at the top of the pyramid scheme, or more accurately, triangle scheme, acquires a number of investors and takes their money and then pays the first lot of investors with the money from another bunch of investors and so on and so forth, all the way to the bottom of the triangle or pyramid face, which is the kind of stupid thing that happens if you keep your money in a pyramid and not a bank account. Although, if you ask me, banks are the real pyramid schemes after all. Always love the real pyramid scheme. I can't remember. Maybe it's better to keep your money in a pyramid than a bank, and I should shop around and compare the interest rates on different pyramids. Maybe I should open up a savings pyramid with a whole bunch of trapdoors and malarias to keep the financial anthropologists, I mean bankers, out, my emeralds cooling under the ground like beautiful woman's eyes. I think this was supposed to be a metaphor for something, but I can't remember where I was going with it. And now it's been swept away by the winds of whatever. But knowing me, it was probably love. That great dark blue sex hope that keeps coming true. That cartoon black castle with a single bird flying over it. I don't know where this poem ends, how far below the sand. But it's still early evening and you and I are a little drunk. You answer the phone. You pour me a drink. I know you hate the domestic and poetry, but you should have thought of that before you invited me to move in with you. I used to think arguments were the same as honesty. I used to think screaming was the same as passion. I used to think pain was meaningful. I no longer think pain is meaningful. I never learned anything good from being unhappy. I never learned anything good from being happy either. The way I feel about you has nothing to do with learning. It has nothing to do with anything, but I feel it down in the corners of my sarcophagus. I feel it in my sleep. Even when I am not thinking about you, you are still pouring through my blood like fire through an abandoned hospital ward. These coins are getting heavy on my eyes. It has been a great honour and privilege to love you. It has been a great honour and privilege to eat cold pizza on your steps at dawn. Love is so stupid. It's like punching the sun and having a million gold coins rain down on you, which you don't even have to pay tax on because sun money is free money, and I'm pretty sure there are no laws about that. But I would pay tax because I believe that hospitals and education and the art should be publicly funded, even this poem. When I look at you, my eyes are two identical neighbourhood houses on fire. When I look at you, my eyes bulge out of my skull like a dog in a cartoon. When I am with you, an enormous silence descends on me, and I feel like I am sinking into the deepest part of my life. We walk down the street with the grass blowing back and forth. 
I have never been so happy. That is beautiful. I just love, and like this is a quality in, in your other poems as well, that it starts somewhere, it meanders around, and it has these these really human kind of observations of like, I don't even know, what, what, is, what is a pyramid scheme? Like I just identify with that so strongly. And then you Google it and you find something out. And then all of a sudden it's about this deep love for him. Yeah, you can see the dedication at the top. Shit. RWT. Does he know how much you love him? Man. There's a man about 10 metres that way who's having these things written about him. Like, that's just the most incredible thing in the whole wide world. I hope he knows how lucky he is. Uh, One of the reasons I think this is really cool as a poem to to read with with students who are thinking about being writers as well or wanting to experiment in writing is that in some ways the kind of process is coded into that poem. It's so self-aware. And then there's this you character, which could just as easily be the reader as the as the person that's it's speaking to and and there's this as fully already mentioned there's this natural drift of ideas stream of consciousness one to the next but then there are moments which are absolutely joyful and then absolutely profound i mean how do you do that I, I remember thinking about writing that poem and that was one of the ones that i did all in one go basically but i can also think of why who influenced me to write it. And, like, I don't know if you've ever seen Stuart Lee's comedy before, but he's this amazing British comedian who tells the most boring jokes that, like, last for 40 minutes and they're not funny for 30 of those 40 minutes or, like, maybe even 39 of the 40 minutes until you get to the last minute. And um, there's a, a guy that I, I'm sorry, I named off him in every interview because he's just like the, the most important poet I've ever read and his name is Mark Leitner and I, just like my whole book wouldn't exist if he hadn't written his book first. And he really, he has these really long poems as well and what I love so much about them is he kind of, com- he compares them to a Boeing 747. So it's like you load the poem with as much impossibly heavy stuff that shouldn't be able to get it off the ground as possible and it's like how do you take a poem that's five minutes long and you get it to fly at the last minute and so I was like how do I get a poem that will end with a line I have never been so happy to be a profound line at the end of the poem and it's like a sort of momentum that you have to build so I was thinking about momentum when I was writing that and Mm. I think that that is yeah it came from two people it came from Mike Leitner and Stuart Lee, and also obviously from the person that, that was guy. written about, which yeah. is like, you know, it couldn't have been written about another person. Like, I think that's the mark of a good love poem. It's, mm. as it's like for the person it's written for. Oh. One of my favourite all-time poets that has just moved me more than anyone is Frank O'Hara, and I, I think his poetry is so beautiful, and I always think of that line, like a tree breathing through its spectacles. Sometimes when I read an Emily Dickinson poem, I do need to go on the um, line by line. But also I think that there's some parts of poetry which cannot be explained or understood, and that's the, the one beauty of it. And, I, you know, you think, like, what is a tree breathing through its spectacles or the cat coming on its the fog coming on a little cat paws? And it's like the thing that can be felt but not explained. One of the things that I do after reading some of your poetry with students is that we try and make Hera Lindsay Bird similes because some of yours are spectacular and they're such fun. I like Leitner similes. So he was the he was the genius of the simile. 
And I think that there's a really cool resource, actually, that your, like, students might be super interested. So one of my best friends is a guy called um, Gregory Khan, who is another New Zealand poet who did a couple of really amazing books. But he's also a coder, and he built this incredible machine, which is, um, I think it's called Glass Leaves, and it's on a thing called Heroku app. So I can send you the link. <laughs> but it, it does this really amazing thing where what you can do is you can put in a Frank O'Hara poem and you can put in the Sylvia Plath poem and you can ask it the machine to change the nouns for you. So it will swap all of the nouns in the Frank O'Hara poem and replace them with Sylvia Plath ones. And it's fantastic because it's such a, I feel like it's not, we don't talk about the ways to actually construct poetry. We just assume that someone sits down at, at an empty typewriter and just um, bangs it out. But like there are concrete ways you can kind of play with language and, and that like true old fashioned burrows cut up technique. And that's a really cool one. That's really cool. And it, although we don't use a, an algorithmic generator, we certainly choose a series of nouns and then a series of statements and we randomize them and it really can lead to some quite beautiful outcomes can't it yeah i used to do it with paper and scissors and a typewriter on my floor and just like physically rearrange them which is how i got all the metaphors in that book it was like right concrete i'm gonna move like spade to flower i'm gonna move spade to tinsel spade to moon you know until you yeah. come up with something that feels generative relevant so so in the in the end in that the talent is the spotting isn't it? Is noticing. I think that anyone can do it and it's just demystifying it and it's just reverse engineering anything you love. It sounds great. And yet at the same time, if we don't have the video of this conversation, but if you had seen the various expressions that Phillies and my faces showed as you read your poem, there's some alchemy in that too, isn't there? You've been listening to Is This For Credits, the podcast of the New Zealand Association for the Teaching of English. Check out what else we're up to by going to our website, nzate.org.nz.